Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 277 of the Ask the Coach show, where Ping Skills helps you improve your table tennis. In this episode, we'll discuss the new katana grip and whether it will become mainstream. We'll look at the results from the recent Swedish Open. We'll have all our usual segments and answer some interesting questions. I'm Jeff Plum, and as always, I'm joined by Super Coach Alois Rosario. Welcome, Alois. Uh, thank you, Jeffrey, and uh, yeah, welcome to all the listeners. And uh, hope you're liking the uh, the new audio podcasts. Yeah, well, they're they're not new; they've been around for ages. But we kind of stopped them for a little while, didn't we? While we just did the um, the Ping Skills show with more of a video format, and uh, of course, we're still doing that once a week, and now doing the audio podcast once a week as well. Yeah, uh, yeah, people getting some good feedback about them too. Excellent, good to hear. Now, Alois, um, we may as well start with the big segment uh, on this day, the one uh, everybody wants to hear. That's right, the one that everyone listens to these podcasts for. Well, um, on this day, a couple of birthdays, table tennis birthdays. Um, so Patrick Chiller, um, who was born in 1969, uh, was born on the 27th of November, so a couple of days ago. Um, but he represented uh, France at Four, um, uh, sorry, at five Olympic uh, games. So that's that's a pretty monumental uh, effort. So from 1992 to 2008, and including winning a bronze medal with uh, Gatien at the 2000 Olympics. And uh, he's one of your rivals there, Jeff, because you played the doubles at uh, 2000 Olympics as well. Yeah, certainly did. Um, yeah, we didn't get near a bronze medal though. <laughs> pretty impressive effort there. Yeah, that's right. So, and and that that would have been a huge event for uh, for France at the time, you know, winning a bronze medal at the Olympics. Um, so, uh, Chiller and uh, Gatien. So, um, yeah, real uh, real champion of, uh, of French table tennis and world table tennis as well. And so um, a... I think so. He was left-handed, wasn't he? So, is that two left-handers? Yeah, yeah. Very interesting, isn't that? That's right. Yeah. So, yeah, unusual, unusual, but yes. Absolutely. Um, and, but also uh, birthday, and, and today is the birthday, well, today in Australia, the 29th of November, uh, birthday of Ariel Singh. So uh, a very famous uh, American table tennis player who competed at the 2012 um, Olympics and did really well there. So in uh, at the Olympics, she made it through a couple of rounds. So she, she beat uh, in the... Round of 128, she beat Yadira Silva in four. Um, and then in the next round, in the round of 64, she beat Nijia Lian uh, from Luxembourg 4-2 in a really tough encounter, uh, winning that sixth game 12-10. But then in the round of 32, which sounds like, oh, yeah, not such a great result. But for Ariel Singh at that time, it was a huge result. Um, she lost to the number two seed, Lijia Jia, Four uh, two again, another tough battle. You know, a couple of eleven nines in there, um, and Li Jiajie, of course, went on to win the gold medal at that event. So, a very creditable um, result there for Ariel Singh uh, in two thousand and twelve. Um, and and Jeff, you've also seen uh, a film. Yeah, yeah. So um, she is one of the stars of the Top Spin documentary. So um, if you haven't seen that, uh, yeah. Have a look, search around for Topspin, uh, the documentary. It's uh, yeah, really interesting, and it 
It shows the journey of her and two other American junior players in their quest to uh, make the Olympic Games. Uh, so, yeah, really interesting just to see, you know, how they yeah, train and their dedication. And, um, yeah, I highly recommend it. Yeah, so so with both – with well, a little bit more about Ariel Singh. So also, I suppose famously, is, is um, very closely um, – Acquainted with uh, Warren Buffett and Bill Gates, so some uh, some pretty impressive people to know, and uh, apparently refers to uh, Bill as uh, as Uncle Bill. So, <laughs> there uh, you go. Yeah, so uh, you know, a good acquaintance to have there, and uh, no lack of support from some pretty high flyers as well. But interestingly, we're talking about these birthdays in November. Um, you know, we we talk about the relative age effect and and um, how being born early in the year is usually uh, an advantage for players. Yeah, and I guess they say that's an advantage because of the cut-off period. Like, you know, if you're going to play in the under-12s, and if you're born in January, yet someone else is born in December, you're like 11 months older than them. So that's, you know, when you're 12, that's a big difference. So you've got, you know, almost a year's worth of development ahead of them. Um, yeah, that's yeah. right. So th- these players, you know, being born in November would have, if the um, if the cutoff dates were the same, you know, would have been battling uphill um, early on in their uh, junior careers to to try to overcome that um, that age gap. I suppose you know that ten eleven months age gap against the those born in January, as you say. Yeah, exactly. Um... But uh, but Ariel, I mean, she. Um, Came to came to prominence really early though as well. I mean, she was a very early developer. You know, so she was um, she was the U.S. national champion at age fifteen um, wow. in two thousand and ten. So yeah, and then won it again in two thousand and eleven and two thousand and thirteen. Um, so yeah, just developing very early. So I suppose she really smashed that um, that relative age effect, didn't she? He <laughs> certainly did. Yeah. Um, yeah, and if you want to find out more about the relative age effect, a really good book to read more about that is Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. So, yeah, that's a, that's an interesting book, thought-provoking, certainly. Yeah. yeah, so, all right, well, there you go. Patrick Chiller, 27th of November, and Ariel Singh on the 29th of November. Yeah, what, what a great segment this On This Day is turning out to be, Jeff. <laughs> yeah, really good. <laughs> uh, yes. All right. Well, let's um, let's move into the tip of the week, Alois. Let's give some people some you know practical advice they can use. Uh, what is the tip of the week? Yeah. So my tip of the week this week is about your wrist motion. So um, a lot of players um, initially will have a very stiff wrist, and that's okay. You know, I don't want you to use too much wrist to start off with with your strokes. But as you start to progress, you can really start to utilize the your wrist motion in a whipping action um, and also in a bit of a waggle action. So if, you, if you're holding the bat out in front of you, um, think about uh, moving your hand backwards so that the back of your hand is moving towards your, uh, your forearm. So, so if you're thinking about that sort of motion, then you're starting to add another dimension to uh, the speed of your stroke. By having your wrist stiff, you're limiting the um, the speed by starting to waggle that wrist backwards and forwards and just relax that wrist. Then you are starting to be able to add another component into uh, into the speed of uh, of your strokes. So the other the other thing that I like with 
waggling your wrist backwards is that it also keeps your bat nice and straight towards where you want the ball to go. Um, And by doing that, you're then able to brush straight up the back of the ball rather than around the side of the ball. So if you're brushing up the back of the ball, you're generating a more pure topspin. Why is that good? Because with pure topspin, you can generate more speed and still get the ball dipping onto the table. So that waggle back motion with the wrist does have a few really good effects. Um, And as I say, you don't need to... um, use too much wrist, especially when you're starting and learning the game. But as you start to develop now, you can really start to think about that waggle back with um, with the wrist at the start of your strokes. Okay. Um, now, um, would you, should you be thinking about it more on any strokes to start with or just thinking about it for all strokes? Um, yeah. So think about... Think about it with your topspin strokes, so with the forehand and the backhand topspin. So with the forehand topspin... Um, yeah, the wrist is going back as you as you swing backwards with the backhand topspin. Same thing. So the the bat is is moving more towards your belly at the start of the stroke to add that little waggle uh, with your stroke to generate that speed. Yeah, interesting. Now for me, definitely the backhand seemed much easier to use the wrist. It feels more natural to me to use the wrist on the backhand. The forehand it's, it seems a little bit awkward, and if you kind of Sometimes I feel like if I use the wrist too much, I don't really uh, still have the full stroke with the rest of my arm. Like I just use the wrist and I forget to forget yes. to use the rest of my arm. Yes, that that's that's a really critical part with that forehand topspin. So when you are doing it, make sure that your bat is still finishing in the correct position. So you know we talk about that eyebrow position or the um, the forehead. Um, so that's where your bat has to finish. If you lose too much control of it, your your battle swing across your body and, you know, finish at your shoulder or at your belly or something like that. So, yeah, make sure that that bat is still finishing in the correct position. Um, So if you get those two things, the relaxation with the wrist and the good finish position, then you'll start to be able to to generate a bit more speed and spin. Now, we've got a video, uh, the advanced forehand topspin, that shows you this... uh, this motion as well so that'll that'll help you uh if you need something visual to have a look at what we're talking about yeah excellent idea all right i will put that the advanced forehand top spin video in the show notes so you can uh go to pingskills.com and find this show on the blog and i'll have the links to that the advanced forehand top spin excellent all right great tip so yeah everyone have a little bit of a think as you're developing about uh about that wrist i like it all right, let's move on to the drill of the week, Alloys. Tell us what we've got in store for everyone this week. Yeah, so uh, so the drill of the week this week is is practicing your flick. So it's probably a stroke that we often find difficult to practice because we don't get many opportunities in a in a game situation or in a training situation to practice that flick. So what I want you to do is you can start by utilizing a multi ball. Uh, to practice the flick, so get someone to feed the ball back, uh, feed the ball to you, um, short with a little bit of backspin um, and into your forehand area. Um, make sure that they are keeping that ball fairly low 
and also just putting a little bit of backspin on it to start start off with to get you to to practice that flicking motion. But I think it's really important that you then move on pretty quickly to practicing the flick off a service motion because the ball does come through to you quite differently off a multi-ball compared to a service motion. So how do you do that? Just get your your practice partner to grab a bucket of balls and just serve the ball to you constantly short and low to your forehand. Um, so you don't have to get them to serve with a whole lot of spin and and, um, and variation to start off with. Just get them to serve with simple backspin short to the forehand and just keep practicing that uh, flicking motion. Then when you start to get uh, confident with the motion, then you could perhaps start to think about uh, getting them to vary the types of spin on the ball uh, because that is really where you do use the flick a whole lot in a in a match situation. Um, you don't often use it, you know, just after a couple of pushes and things. It's more off that return of serve. So practice that effectively during your, your training session as well. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Excellent. All right, good uh, good drill of the week. Um, yeah, and uh, so for that also, yeah, just to get this you started, if you haven't used multi-ball, I'll put a link in the show notes to the introduction to multi-ball uh, uh, video that we've got. It really is a great tool for practicing in all areas and, you know, it gets you hitting a lot of balls quickly, so it's it's worth uh, looking up. Yeah, and just um, and with the with the forehand flick in particular as well, and the backhand flick, it also brings into the um, into account that wrist motion we were talking about earlier with the tip of the week, um, because that is a really critical part of the the flicking action is to get that wrist back. So we'll also put a um, link in the show notes about the the forehand flick video. Uh, to the forehand flick video, which will show you that motion as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and um, yeah, the I think to me that the forehand flick, the wrist does feel more natural because it's it is a kind of a shorter stroke. Um, so the wrist seems like to be a more prominent uh, part of the stroke, whereas with the forehand top spin, you know, it, it, it's an important part, but there's also all these other bits that are important as well. Yeah, and that's why that's why I think you know early on don't don't try to focus on that wrist motion too much because the stroke will get really sloppy. Yeah. Um, but as you advance, you can start to relax that wrist and still finish in the correct position. Yeah. Excellent. All right. Very good. Now, um, recently there was a, a pretty big tournament, Alloys, the Swedish Open. Yes. Um, yeah. Um, Tell us about yeah. this. Yeah, the Swedish Open is one of the world tour events. It's one of the major world tour events. Um, so, again, no uh, no big Chinese players uh, playing. So, opened the door for um, other other players to come through. And um, you know, the Japanese have been so strong at these world tour events, and they really support it heavily. and And they see it as a big part of their development. And they're having they're starting to have really good results over the last couple of years because of that as well. So the men's singles um, went to Yuya Oshima. So a youngish sort of guy that you know has, has really come through. Um, and Yuya uh, beat Matthias uh, Carlson in the final. So again, another up and coming player. Um, and I suppose it's really starting to to see the 
a bit of the changing of the guard, you know, with the Japanese and the Swedes now starting to come through really strongly, which is fantastic to see. Um, so the final there, Yu Yoshima beat, uh, beat Carlson 4-2, um, winning that sixth game 13-11, you know, loses that and it goes to a seventh and who knows what happens. Um, but uh, Yuya along the way also, you know, beating his countryman uh, Kenta Matsudaira. Uh, 4-1, and um, and Kenta beating Marcus Freitas in the quarterfinal. Uh, mm, 4-1. Yeah. yeah. That would have and, been a good match. Uh, yeah. yeah. The, the other side of the draw saw uh, number one seed Ovcharov going down to uh, Carlson in the semifinal for two. Um, so, yeah, Ovcharov, you know... Um, would have been was definitely favourite for this event, but uh, not able to get over the top of uh, Matthias Carlsen. Um, but he did take out uh, Liam Pitchford four one in the quarterfinals. Yeah, so I mean, there's some really strong performances coming up, aren't there? Like the English are going well. Liam Pitchford, you know, good to reach the quarters, and uh, and then yeah, um, yeah. Ovcharov, um, you know, semi-final would be a little bit disappointed, but good to see uh, Carlson uh, come through and make the final. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so so I think we talked about this in the last show. You know, it's, it, these sort of events really give an opportunity to that next tier of players to to start to stamp their authority on the world scene and to and to just show the world that you know they can perform um, at uh, at a high level on the big stage. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. And then the women's. Um, so, again, the Japanese uh, coming through there with uh, Ishikawa uh, beating uh, Malik Hugh from Turkey um, for one in the final. So, yeah, strong performance there. Malik Hugh has had some good results recently as well. Um, she beat uh, Han Ying from Germany in the semi semifinal. Um, and uh, Ishikawa beat Cheng Yi Ching. Uh, from Taipei in her semi-final, so yeah, so strong, strong by Ishikawa. She was the number one seed, but um, but yeah, again, good to stamp her authority and to and to you know win and get over the line in these sort of events. Yeah, certainly, certainly, and I guess um, you know everyone will be uh, fighting for points for the World Tour Grand Finals later on this year. Yeah, and that's coming up pretty soon. So that's right. So that that uh, I think. Uh, those those um, places are just about set now. Okay, excellent. All right, well that's uh, that's good. And uh, you know, uh, with the Swedes having such a history with you know Waldner and Person, and you know back even before that, Lind and Bankston, and um, you know it's great to see a strong tournament still being held there, and then great to see you know Carlson come through to the final. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, good good to see the Swedes starting to. Uh, to make uh, make their way back into the top of the world uh, table tennis scene. Excellent. Now, next up, Alois, I wanted to talk about a new group that uh, seems to be... Um, it, people seem to be talking about this quite a lot now, the Katana grip. There was like a, a two-year-old uh, kid using this funny grip. Two-year-old? Pardon? Two-year-old? A two-year-old. <laughs> a grade two. <laughs> a two-year-old would be impressive, wouldn't it? It would be. No, yeah. no she was in grade two. And yes. she used this strange grip. It was kind of like a penhold grip, but instead of wrapping all her fingers around the bat, it was more like she was just holding 
the rubber. And so she was actually using a different side on the forehand, a different side on the backhand. It was almost like a combination between the, the shake hand grip and the pen hold grip. Yeah, and also also a bit of the V grip. So we'd seen the V grip earlier um, as well make a make a bit of a bit of a run. Yeah, so uh, we'll we'll put a we'll put a link to the video of her playing. But I must say, I don't see any advantages with that grip over the shake hand or the pen hole grip. Um, she's basically holding the bat on the side of the handle, and she hooks her her finger around the handle, her her index finger around the handle a bit, but. Um, yeah, I, I don't see any advantages. She's not getting the um, the length of the of the handle, you know, as as an extra lever. Um, it's almost like she's just holding the the head of the racket. So, yeah, I don't don't necessarily um, think that it's going to take off. But you know, I mean, this young girl plays pretty darn well with it. So uh, let's <laughs> give it time, you know. And in and, and in um, five years' time, we'll be saying, well, isn't this the Fantastic grip, the best, uh, the best thing we've ever seen. <laughs> Maybe I'm, I'm going to go around. Yeah, I'm going to say it's not going to take off either. I think, um, yeah. Again, I don't see, yeah, like you said, any advantages to just using the shake hand grip because you got a lot of fingers on the rubber there. So for the backhand, that might get in the way a little bit. Um, yeah, why not just use the shake hand grip if you're going to hold that. Um, because you're not getting yeah with the with the pen hold some people say you know you don't have a a middle so but she would cuz she's using both sides of the racket um yeah so yeah for me i don't know i think stick with the pen hold or the shake hand pick one of those yeah but, but, but we'll but, see take a look at the video the katana yeah. grip it's really interesting to see and i mean super impressive for you know a grade someone in grade 2 to play so well yeah absolutely yeah so i mean she's doing all right with what she's doing but yeah i it wouldn't be something that I would recommend to kids um, when they're starting or even adults if they're starting to learn. Yeah, certainly. All right. Well, let's um, let's get on to some questions then, Alois. Um, first up, we've got uh, one about long pimples for the reverse penhold backhand. They say, good evening. Um, he says, I have a question in mind and... Is it okay to use long pips when playing the reverse penhold backhand? What do you yeah. think about this, Alois? Yeah, no, it, I, I think it is. I think it's uh, it's good if you can do it. it. It's a really difficult stroke to play, though, because um, with the long pimples on the backhand, you basically it's hard to attack with the long pimples unless it's a, a backspin ball. So it certainly would throw your opponent off if you can use it, but it is a very difficult stroke to try to to use um, uh, yeah, the long pimples on. I mean, I, I find it difficult enough to use um, inverted rubber on the on the long pimples, oh, oh, sorry, on the reverse penhold backhand. Um, so, um, yeah, you, you just don't have the control with that long pimples, you know. So I, I'd say if you can do it, great. Um, otherwise, um, you know, probably just put some inverted rubber if, if you're going to use the uh, reverse pen hold a lot. Um, but um, we've, all, we've all also got a player in uh, Australia, Janfang Lei, who uses long pimples on one side and uh, inverted on the other and, and plays with a pen hold grip. But she twiddles or changes sides very quickly and uses, uses it very effectively. So if you're going to do that, great. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if that's the effect you're after, just 
trying to vary it with the long pimples, uh, it'd be worth trying both those options, yeah. Because like you said, Jam Fang Lei from Australia, legend of Australian table tennis, uses the twiddling very effectively. So that certainly is a good option. Yeah, excellent. All right, great question. Now, next up, Alloys, um, is one from Nathan, and this is uh, this is a good one. He says, I've never been able to beat my dad at table tennis. He's nothing special, but whenever I'm doing really well, he always makes me choke and I mess up. Also, um, whenever I play, I mess up simple shots, and I start getting very angry, and that makes me miss even more. My dad ends up quitting on me whenever we're playing because I get so mad. So how do I keep myself from missing those easy shots and how do I keep my temper cool? Please help. I really need to beat him. So please help me. <laughs> All right, Nathan. I, I, I hear your desperation. So firstly, that desperation of, of really wanting to win, um, you know, in this case, it's against your dad, will stir up those emotions and that emotional level will get higher than it needs to be. So the first thing is, just need to calm down during your matches. You know, start to think a little bit more about the processes of what you need to do to beat your dad in this situation. You know, what are his weaknesses? Where should you serve to? Where should you be attacking to? Um, where does he like to attack to? So you need to start to to um, to figure these things out for the game. Then you can start to also think a little bit more about how you're going to deal with the situation of when you do start to get a bit anxious or or your your emotional level starts to get a little bit too high, what sort of things can you do? So there's there's simple um, te- um, techniques you can use, like just taking a couple of seconds between points, take a nice deep breath, think about the tactics that you're going to utilise in the next point. You know, where are you going to serve to? Where are you going to return to? Where are you going to attack to? And just start to get get it down to a point by point basis. Um, and and utilize uh, your time in between points to calm yourself rather than letting your your head go everywhere and starting to you know stress and worry about am I going to beat him? I really want to beat him. Um, so yeah, so it's more it's more about you know just managing that emotional level, Nathan. Yeah, it's a really interesting topic, isn't it? I mean, yeah, of course everyone wants to win, and so when you're not, you do start to feel a bit yeah. Angry, but like you said, if you kind of break it down point by point, old cliche, and and instead of thinking about the winning, just thinking about yeah, like you said, steps that you can do to you know get closer to your dad, and maybe even break it down into goals, and don't expect to beat him straight away, but you know just have some goals to get closer, or not even get closer, just to play you know uh, points more how you would like to play them, or get better at playing each point. Maybe you, you want to play your top spin a bit better. Yeah, I think that's a really crucial point there, Jeff. You know, focus on playing better. You know, if, as soon as you start to focus completely on the result of beating your dad, then uh, emotionally you're going to skyrocket, go up and down all over the place. Focus on, as Jeff said, playing better, playing each point better, and then your game will get better. Yeah. And um, you see this all the time, don't you? I mean, if you go down to a table tennis hall and watch a group of kids playing or a group of adults playing, it doesn't matter, um, you're always going to see someone uh, lose their cool at some stage. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. It does happen. But, yeah, I mean, but you notice, you know, the best players are the ones that, that 
manage to keep that under control, you know, and do follow these processes. And they seem to be, you know, never under pressure. Um, That's right. Yeah. All right, Nathan. So hopefully those tips help you out. Great question. Uh, stick with it. Um, and yeah, yeah, just, just, yeah, try and get that emotional state under control. Excellent. All right, next question is from Ardak, who says, I played with a guy who plays really fast. When he does his very fast topspin serves, I can't react or loop um, or use my topspin. And because I can't topspin against very fast balls, he serves sometimes to the left and sometimes to the right. Um, so I try to topspin it, but without, without success. So I can always block it back, but then he continues to topspin. So... What can I do? Do you have any um, tactics here that Ardak can use against this very fast server? Yeah, sure. Ardak, the first, the first and most important thing is to make sure that you are watching the ball really carefully when he's got it in his hand and ready to serve. By watching the ball, you're going to give yourself just that fraction of a second more time to be able to react quicker. So that's the first thing. The second thing is don't try to do too much with the ball. So you're saying that, you know, when you block it back, he he, he attacks it and, and top spins to you and whatever. That's okay. Think more about how am I going to just um, counter the speed that he's putting on the serve, but then think about how am I going to place the ball better first? Can I get it into an awkward position to him? Can I get it closer to the lines? Can I get it a little bit lower? So by placing the ball better, again, you'll be surprised at how much more difficult that becomes for the server to attack that next ball. The third thing then you can start to think about is rather than using a big loopy stroke to try to generate um, some more speed, just think about putting a little bit of topspin on the ball um, on the return. So how do you do that? Just push your bat forward and over the top of the ball um, slightly. doesn't need to be a big stroke, but by just brushing forward and over the ball, you're going to add a little bit of topspin. That kicks forward when it hits your opponent's side and, again, gives them less time. So, uh, Artek, don't try to play the big stroke. Think about, firstly, your placement on the return. And then secondly, you can start to think about how you can just add a little bit more topspin, a little bit more speed on the ball by pushing forward on, on the ball and brushing over the top. Um, and that, you, you'll be surprised at how much difference that can make to the, to, uh, to the effectiveness of the server on the next ball. Yeah, great tips. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. So, yeah, Artic, try try exactly what Alloy said. And as he said... It doesn't take, you know, a lot um, to put the pressure back onto you to the person that's serving it fast. So yeah, consider that. Consider that placement first, and that's going to make a big difference on its own. And then yeah, just even adding just a tiny bit more topspin and tiny bit more speed. Certainly no big stroke. Um, yeah, it's going to really put the pressure on on the server. Good question. All right, next up is a question from Jason. And he says, I already know how to do the ghost serve, so I don't want to ask about that. I'm just amazed when I see that he's talking about Marlene in particular here. He's hiding the serve with his left hand. And if I watch his serve in his matches, I can see that he just brushed the ball to the other side. It looks like he's doing a reverse pendulum serve, but he's actually doing a normal serve. So my question is, how do I do that? I really want to learn it. Okay, so firstly, Jason, so yeah, Marlin does push the boundaries as far as um, 
putting his other arm over the over the ball. He they, I mean, most of those players they basically get away with it um, because they're just getting the arm out of the way in time. You know, sometimes not really in time, um, but they are getting away with it. That's the that's the main thing. Um, so what's he doing with his? Um, with his fake action. So basically what he's doing is he's doing the pendulum serve, but he's throwing in a few different actions uh, before or after the contact to just make it look different. So um, as you said, it looks like he's going to do the reverse pendulum, but then he actually does the pendulum serve Um, or the end of his action looks like the reverse because um, when you actually see his arm, he's, He's coming. The the bat's coming out, um, out like it's a reverse pendulum serve. So yeah, it's just it's just difficult for um to, for the receiver often to see what's going on there with uh, with Marlin's serve. Yeah, absolutely. Now these actions after he's hit the ball obviously can't have any effect on the spin because he's already hit the ball, so the ball's already spinning. So what's what what's the main point of moving the bat after you've already hit yeah. the ball? It's yeah, it's just a different action. It's just a different action and a different um, um, picture, I suppose, for the receiver. Uh, because then the receiver, if you, if you're just seeing the normal pendulum serve, then it's um, it's difficult or it's it's easy to to make that return when it's coming in. But if you're seeing a different picture, then it it just throws the mind a little bit and the brain sort of thinks, oh, what's going on there? Yeah, makes sense, makes sense. So um, for people uh, serving themselves, do you recommend that they try and do a few of these actions after they've hit the ball to try and confuse their opponent? Yeah, definitely. Once you've got the basic actions right, then definitely start to think a little bit about um, what what else you can do just to make it a little bit more difficult for your opponent. Excellent. All right, sounds like a good, um, good idea. Uh, great question, Jason. Um, and, yeah... Get out there and uh, try and uh, throw in some fake actions at the end of your serve. All right, Alice. Well, that wraps up another Ping Skills Ask the Coach show, episode 277, in fact. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Make sure you check out pingskills.com. And as I mentioned before, we'll put heaps of uh, links in the show notes to this show. So you can find them by clicking on the blog link at pingskills.com. And thank you, Alois. Thanks, Jeffrey, and uh, thanks, uh, listeners, and uh, hope you enjoyed the show, and send us some feedback. Absolutely, and we will see you shortly. Bye, everyone.